You're listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I love to run, period. You can always run faster. Forever, you're going to feel something. You're going to run into roadblocks, but that's also going to teach you how to handle things in life. I don't think we want to be like rocks where we're not affected by anything. It's not maybe a physical thing, but it's a mental thing. There's like two voices in me, alpha and beta. Really trying to do is just keep moving forward. Every single runner knows what that means. My life has a purpose, and maybe it's not what I thought it was going to be, but. There were times when I didn't think I would be able to come back. There's a lot of people that had different gifts, and they don't use it. I think if we all use our gifts, we could do something really special, not for ourselves, but for our family. If we're really good, we could do something for our community. Wherever we live. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's your host, Mario Fraioli, and we are back with a new episode of the podcast. I'm super excited about this one for a number of reasons, but it is the first installment of our next series and i'm calling this one coach to coach and here to set it up with me is my right hand man chris douglas chris welcome back to the show happy to be here it's always good to go back and forth with you about the upcoming episode and goings on in both of our lives and before we uh introduce our guest this week and talk about the coach to coach series you are fresh off of the otillo swim run world championships We've been talking a little bit about it in previous mm-hmm. episodes of the podcast, and I intentionally have not asked you very many questions <laughs> about it. So let's just dive right into the degree that you're comfortable, because I know you and your partner, Chipper Nicodemus, are going to do Oof, kind yeah. of a debrief episode for your own podcast, The Low Tide Boys, but tell me how it went. Yeah, well, you know, um, it was the second time we went out there, so we knew exactly what we were getting ourselves into. And I think last time we, when we spoke about this, um, I mentioned how every year is different because it just depends on the weather and it's such a long day. And this year was way harder than last year. So the conditions were really strange. The water was cold, the air was warm, and the seas were uh, were angry. To you know, it was very sort of Melvillian of it. Um, the first swim was just a washing machine. Uh, it was it was a mess. It was a mess, and that was you know I wouldn't say that was sort of foreboding. It was just like teeing up what what the day was going to be like. So the ocean currents were much stronger. Um, but the air temp was really warm and sunny. It turned into like a bluebird day when leading up to the race, it looked like it was going to rain all day, which would have been better in many ways than and it being sunny and hot. Um, but yeah, my partner Chipper and I, we we had a good race. I ended up sustaining an injury in the first third of the race that really expressed itself in the last third of the race, mm-hmm. which just shows how long this thing is. And it wasn't until sort of the last long run where it really started kind of bugging me. Um, so we leached a lot of time at the end, but I think um, it's just such a fun event, and the whole experience was just like last year. It was just really positive, and yeah, our time was slower than it was last year, but I think everyone's time was slower just because the day was much harder. Right. For those who, who don't know, you competed in the Swim Run World Championships, the Otillo Swim Run World Championships in 
Sweden, and you have described the sport as amphibious trail running. I would take it a step further and call it amphibious ultra trail running. Um, yeah, for this one, for break, sure. Break it down for the listeners, just the, the distance yeah. and kind of the rough breakdown of what you were doing all day. Sure. So the total race distance is around 70 kilometers, which with about 60 kilometers of that being running and about 10 kilometers of that being swimming, all intermixed across 24 islands in the Stockholm Archipelago. So that's 37 issues miles of running and 6.2 miles of swimming yeah all mixed up so the first swim is about a mile the next swim is about you know 200 meters you know it's just just like you just keep kind of picking off amounts um the last long swim is around you know 900 meters and things like that and yeah it's just you're running across these islands and it isn't like, um, as we would call, you know, it wasn't California carpet or anything like that. Super technical, treacherous, slippery, mossy. At one point, um, it was really, it was one section was super boggy and people were literally stepping into mud, like down to their knees. (laughs) It was just like, oh, now there's this, um, which is, uh, yeah. I mean, the way, the way I try to describe the race to people, it's like, if this race was a movie, the main character is the race itself and all the participants are just like extras that are just maybe they get chewed up and spit out. Maybe they have a slight feature role in the thing. But for the most part, you know, the race is what dictates what goes on, which um, which is an interesting thing to experience just as a someone who's trying to be competitive and doing it as a team kind of changes that whole dynamic. But to think that you there's things that you can control and things you can't control. And this is something you say a lot, Mario. It's like, you know, it's not always about just crossing the finish line is how you deal with adversity along the way. And this race just, it's just throwing adversity at you and, you know, every, every step of the way. Yeah. I mean, it's an endurance sport. I mean, the whole point is to endure difficulty (laughs) at the end of the day. And and I think, I mean, that seems obvious when we say it, but it's worth reminding ourselves of, I mean, we don't do these things because they're easy. Otherwise we probably wouldn't do them. Yeah, no, and this one in particular, oh man, it was so hard. And I was, uh, I don't think I've ever had to go that deep from overcoming just, I was just in like a lot of pain. Yeah. Like it felt, so I basically impaled myself on some branch um, that I didn't see. And while you're running? While I was running. And the branch, you know, the branch didn't move. It was, <laughs> the only thing that moved was, was my quad. And I remember telling Chipper, oh, I think I, I got a Charlie horse and started feeling it right away, you know, tons of bounding, jumping up and down and stuff. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to deal with this. But I think because it happened early on and there was a lot of cold swimming, it kind of kept inflammation at bay. And it wasn't until the last 11 mile long run, which comes in two thirds of the way through the race, um, where it was just a lot of pounding, a lot of straight running that it really started just doing its number on me and i was you know i was crying i was trying breathing exercise i was trying everything just to keep moving forward and you know it's one of the beauties of the sport and anyone wants to hear me wax philosophical about this just text me or whatever um you know you're you're capable to do more than the sum of your parts when you're in a team like i don't want to let chipper down he doesn't want to let me down my ability to to dig deeper is because we're trying to do this together so I i think i was able to pull out something where if I was doing this race solo, I'd still be out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think in this specific instance too, like just down to the actual injury itself, where it occurred on your quad is underneath your like swimsuit, right? So yeah. you don't even have a visual 
representation of the damage. You just know that it hurts. And um, little spoiler, I mean, before we started getting on the mics here, you showed me the wound. It, like, you got stabbed by yeah, like, pretty I, it was, hard. It was bad. Deep. It was bad. And it, it didn't rip the suit. And I didn't uh, I didn't pull up the suit just to kind of peek at it until the run. I was like, okay, this actually really hurts. What's going on? Like, honestly, I thought I might have, like, a shard of tree or something in me or something because it was the pain was so sharp. Um, and I think, you know, I called my cousin and he's like, oh, it sounds like just a really bad, you know, muscle contusion with probably some bone bruising or anything or something like that. But yeah, man, when you're in it and it really hurts, oh, it's just like, talk about, talk about having to dig real deep and, you know, our guest today, which I don't, we, we don't need to get into that just yet, but, you know, he recently wrote a book called Master of Change. And I felt like I was trying to apply some of the lessons of that book, like in real time in a very compressed time frame. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, I found it helpful on some level. Obviously, I was bummed out because, you know, my partner Chipper and I spent, you know, the better part of eight months with this on the pedestal and doing everything possible to be as prepared as possible for it. And we weren't really able at the end of the day to sort of express all that fitness in the way we wanted to, but we endured. We dealt with the adversity and, you know, we stayed out of our sort of rage pathway and stayed in our seeking pathway to just try to process problems, keep moving forward and made it to the finish line together. Yeah, it's awesome. Not to go too long on Otolo. I am fascinated by it. I don't <laughs> want to take away from uh, introducing sure. our guest this week, but two more questions for you. Number one, this is the second year in a row that you and Chipper competed in these world championships aside from the weather conditions which you just described what was different this time around just going into it from a mindset standpoint maybe from a training standpoint and also from an execution standpoint yeah well i think like anytime you're going back to do something again that's on the same course i think it's is is both a blessing and a curse on the one hand you know exactly what you're going up against, which that can be liberating, but also kind of stressful because you know how hard it is. And and the level of difficulty um, we knew could only get worse because when we did it last year, everybody said that was sort of the best conditions that have ever been, or at least the best conditions since 2018. Um, And so we we sort of were expecting something different Um, and we were prepared for that. So I think in that respect, like our mindset was was really good and positive. I think we've both been working on sort of, you know, listening to Dr. Justin Ross and, and doing everything we can to just be in it when it mattered. You know, the, the last thing was just knowing that we'd been there before and knowing that we at least put like a pretty respectable sort of time the first time. It kind of helped calibrate what we thought we were capable of. Whereas the first time you're just like, it's the unknown and who knows what's going to happen. This thing is a beast. And um, this time it felt like we were able to kind of be more present and sort of remember landmarks better kind of thing. Whereas the first year, everything just turns into a blur because you're just trying to survive it. Yeah. Last question. When you and Chipper crossed the finish line, after all of the difficulties that you endured both expected and unexpected you just mentioned how you weren't able to fully express your fitness in the way that you wanted to but what was that overwhelming feeling when you got across the line what was the first thing that you guys said to each other or maybe you said to each other on the way to the finish line yeah i mean i think getting to the finish line was always the goal and i think for us you know our outcome goal 
wasn't necessarily based on time. I think we wanted to put out a performance that was representative of our training. And again, the depending on conditions, you know, everyone was slower. The world champions were 30 minutes slower than we were last year. We were about 30 minutes slower than we were last year. So everyone was, was, was dealing with the sort of the same adversity or the same course. Um, so on the way to the finish line, we were just commenting on, you know, the fact we got to do it again and, and, and how great it was. And yeah, I mean, I felt personally, I felt just a lot of relief when I got to the finish line cause I could stop Yeah, and having to dig that deep. And the last little bit of the race, you basically go up this, this hill and they call it heartbreak hill. But, you know, being from San Francisco, it's really nothing. It's just like a little tiny thing, but you know, after 69 kilometers, sure. it's, it's still, it's still tough. And I think that's the first time where I was running just purely on adrenaline just to get it done. And usually at finish lines, I am just, you know, just full of energy, very, very enthusiastic. And Chipper is usually the one who's down and sort of out of energy. This was, this was, it was flipped. Roll so, rehearsal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was, uh, so he had to take care of me a little bit and, um, and yeah, I mean, I just felt relief. I felt, I still felt accomplished. Again, our outcome goal wasn't necessarily based on time. It was mostly on just performance and dealing with the course and, and successfully making good decisions along the way kind of thing and being fluid and addressing all the ambiguities as they came about. So I think in that respect, it was a really successful day. Last thing that I'll say, you mentioned a few minutes ago how you wanted the race to be a reflection of your training. And I think it was, even if the, the outcome or the numbers next to your name, both place and time weren't what you had in mind. I don't know that you would have been able to navigate the situations in the way that you did without your training. And that's not just the long runs and the big swims and the, Mm -hmm. and the, and the back and forth. I mean, I know just from a lot of our offline conversations, you can't speak for chipper so much, but you are a team. So I imagine you did some of this together, put a lot into the mental game. I mean, you did the course with Dr. Justin Ross. I know the two of you had him on your podcast recently and something that we've talked a lot about. and, And I think, without having put in that kind of work, you might not have responded in the same way when you got impaled by a tree and were in pain the, yeah. every step of the way, the final third of the race. So, I mean, hats off to you. I think the race was, you know, really an, an expression of, of your training, even if, again, the, the numbers and what we think of as the result or what we really want wasn't exactly in line with your original expectations. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, I mean, I definitely... This year has been one of growth. Just, I, I think we both have had that growth. Like since you had Dr. Justin Ross on, like I've been listening to a lot of his work. Again, did his class. We had him on the show, um, and it's been really helpful. And I think, like, you know, older and wiser, yada yada yada. But I really feel like this year my mental game was so much stronger, and you know, my performance standards were locked in all year. And the fact that when it really got difficult. It didn't fall apart or it didn't go sideways or I mean it went sideways, but you were able to just still roll with it. I think if anything, that's that's a lot of growth for me. And I think and, and, and Chipper as well, because he had to deal with me. He's not used to, he's not used to me being the weakest link and things like that. So I think it, it was harder for him as well. And, and again, we were just working the problem. And you, you came up in conversation several times where I was like, I think Mario would say this in this context kind of thing. Yeah, so it's nice to have it be over. We're not going back next year. That's already been decided. It's too long a race. takes too much time, too much time away from the family. 
So in many ways, like getting to the finish line was also kind of like an ending of sorts mm-hmm. for, for this particular adventure. Not that we're done swim running or but it's just there's so many different races to do and each race is different. So why not have a variety of experiences? Yeah, that's awesome. I'll save the rest of my questions for our offline sure. conversations, <laughs> but including how much FICA or FICA, I don't remember. FICA. FICA did you eat uh, throughout your week there? But we'll save all that for later. With all that out of the way, let's get to this week's episode of the podcast. You want to set it up for us? Yeah. So so the first conversation in this Coach to Coach series is a mutual friend of ours, Brad Stolberg. And it's really two conversations in one. I mean, they're related, mm-hmm. but the first part is about sort of the practice of thoughtful coaching and the second is sort of a tactical discussion about navigating change in sport and life and i think um i'm biased so i just need to clear my bias so full disclosure i work with brad i'm one of his agents i run his and steve magnus's media company the growth equation in addition to that he's a mentor to me in my own coaching practice and has been a dear friend who i was lucky enough to be connected by you mario almost five years ago now so i think with that i'm biased but i also don't care because I think this is a great conversation. I think Brad's great. Well, I'm kind of biased too. I mean, I said this when Brad and I started talking, he's the first and only, I think, four-time guest of the podcast. Of course, if he's the first, he's got to be the only Uh, (laughs) four-time guest of the podcast. He and I go way back, I think almost um, 12 years now before anyone listening to this really knew who Brad was. He was just starting to get into writing and submitted some story ideas to me when I was the editor at competitor we hit it off struck up a friendship eventually i moved to the bay a few years later we became real life friends uh and that's continued ever since so anytime i get a chance to talk to brad which i I do a fair amount um even even offline is a special time but i'm super excited to share this conversation with everyone because it's about something that he and i are both passionate about which is coaching um this is called the coach to coach series aside from being a fairly well-known author brad is I would call him an executive coach, a performance coach. He works with a lot of entrepreneurs, CEO types, people who are in leadership positions of medical teams, that sort of thing. And, you know, he, he coaches them on performance, essentially. And in this series, I'm talking with a number of different coaches, not just in distance running. We've got a swim coach coming up. We've got a sprint coach coming up. We do have a distance running coach coming up. We may have um, some other types of coaches in there as well. I'm still trying to round out the, you know, the final, final roster, but I'm looking for just parallels that really stretch across different domains. Um, the X's and O's of, you know, how you coach may be different, but a lot of the principles and methods and problems are, you know, are the same. So it's fun to talk with Brad, you know, about that. And then he's got his new book out, Master of Change. And change is something that he works with a lot of his clients on as they're navigating that in their companies throughout their careers. Change is something I work with a lot of my athletes on as they age, as they get to different points of their life as they're trying out new events, that sort of thing. And I just, I love this conversation. I thought it, I thought it was a fun one. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think like some key takeaways for me was, again, if you think part one, which was a coach to coach conversation, it was more about like, you know, the notion that a coach's role is to help people achieve independence rather than dependence. I thought that was a point well taken. And also the idea of moving from just getting insight to actually turning that into sort of action or change. Yep. Um, cause it's, it, it's, it's never as clear cut as that. And, and I think the final thing was having the confidence that you don't need to prove your value 
as as a coach you just yeah. need to do good work and and let the rest kind of take care of itself i thought that was really that was really um all really good points that was the most interesting part of the conversation to me because i've definitely felt that way as a running coach i mean someone's paying you to help them toward this goal and even if they don't say it explicitly i think we put pressure on ourselves to write the perfect workout plan or sometimes over explain things and it was interesting to hear brad talk about his own experiences with that in in his practice and it forced both of us really in in our own situations to step back and really try to look at what matters and to deliver something in as simple and actionable a way as possible yeah exactly yeah i mean i guess and and then sort of the second part of the conversation was about his new book master of change which is out now everyone should buy buy multiple copies send some to your friends and a lot of the book is about sort of the importance of cultivating your environment to be better at responding and not reacting to, to changes that happen in your life. Oh, and by the way, these changes are inevitable and are constant. And the better you can sort of wrestle with that, the better you can sort of navigate everything that flows from that. And and I wanted to ask you, you know, as a coach, and you and I would both have opportunities to read this book before it came out. The The part of the book that I found most interesting was the idea of to different neural pathways that you can access, whether if you want to respond to something, you need to be in a seeking pathway. If you're just reacting to something, you're in a rage pathway. And the fact that you can't access both at the same time, I just found that super interesting. And I I wanted to ask you sort of as a running coach when, and I sort of felt this myself in my race a few Mm -hmm. days ago, trying to stay in that seeking pathway. Like what, what is, what are some things that you would, that you would tell your athletes, you know, when they're in adversity, like how, how can you like, really quickly try to respond to this rather than reacting. Yeah. That's a framework that I've used myself for several years now to respond, not react. I didn't know the neuroscience behind it, that it was actually called like a rage, there was a rage pathway and then there's this like, you know, seeking, you know, type of pathway. I think that's what what it was Mm -hmm. called. Um, But we've all experienced it. If we think about it as, as athletes, I mean, could be something as simple as the race start was delayed five minutes because there was a train that was going to go by and it threw off somebody's, you know, warm up. It's like, well, you know, are you just going to be like pissed off because it threw off your timing and then your day's, you know, already shot? Or, you know, can you like internalize that for a second and be like, well, that's out of my control. Um, what can I control in this moment? I still can have a good race, you know, move on and, and any number of things, you know, that, that could definitely happen. Um, and it happens at, thinking about in a sporting context that at all, at all levels. And I think that is, it's a skill, um, to be able to respond, not react that would be beneficial for all of us to, to work on. Um, because I, I think we're wired to react, but we need to train ourselves to, to respond. Um, and there is a a difference between the two. I mean, and, and sometimes, you know, not all reacting is bad. Sometimes you need to, um, you know, thinking about it in the, you know, in the middle of a race, I mean, things happen like in a, in a split second and you may just, you know, you may just react. That's not necessarily like a, a bad thing, but you know, even in a fast paced type of situation, it doesn't have to be, you know, whatever your first instinct is, you can usually slow things down enough to, you know, think through the scenario, what's happening. And I mean, to use that word again, how you're going to respond to it. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I love this book. 
think you and I have read everything that Brad's ever written. And I think we'd both like highly recommend this book for folks to check out. Yeah. I, I literally think I've read every word that Brad's ever, <laughs> ever written. Uh, at least most of the stuff that's available for, you know, for public consumption. I do think this is his best work. I think it is applicable across a wide range of domains but especially for those of you who are listening to this if you are an athlete if you are in a position of leadership or i mean you're just someone like the rest of us who are trying to figure out how to navigate different types of change in our life i mean this this book is for you i think a lot of us crave stability and routine myself included Um, those things are important but they're going to get rattled. It happens. Um, and, and when it does, like, are you going to let it rattle you? Are you going to react, um, and let it throw you off your game? Or are you going to learn how to, you know, how to respond to that and accept that things are being, you know, the term Brad uses is, you know, when they're in a state of disorder, that they're going to be reordered, you know, things aren't going to go back to the way that they used to be. Um, you know, he and I talked about this in the conversation. It was kind of the impetus for this book during the pandemic. People are like, well, when things go back to the way, you know, that they used to be, um, you know, newsflash, it's, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, things, things are going to change. Uh, that is just inevitable. Or, you know, as, as athletes, I was having this conversation with an athlete yesterday and he was saying, well, I want to get back to where I was 10 years ago. I'm like, it's not happening, dude. You're a different athlete. 10 years ago, right? It's like, but it doesn't mean you can't be better or, or different, but it's going to change, you know, because a lot of things in, in your life have changed. And I think like he knew that inherently, but until like we vocalized it, um, it just kind of like went over, you know, his head. So I think, I think there's just a lot of good stuff in here. Everyone should read it. Um, change is the one constant in life. And I think this is a good guide with actionable insights to help you to navigate that. Totally, totally. Well, I guess uh, we've teed it up enough. Before we get to this conversation, should we shout out our sponsors? Let's shout out the sponsors, and then we'll get right to the conversation, because I would hate for the intro to be longer than the conversation (laughs) itself. Uh, Our first sponsor, longtime partner of The Morning Shakeout, is Tracksmith and... You all know, I love this brand. I love their apparel. I love their content. I love their events. I mean, everything that they do really celebrates the culture and history of the sport that we all love so much. And right now, they have their cross-country collection that is out. Um, You can find it on tracksmith.com. I love cross-country. I'm going to be racing some cross-country myself this fall. It's the purest form of of racing. I wish more people would do it. Um, you know, it's very popular at the high school and college level here in the U S internationally, it's a much bigger deal, but you know, cross country is, it's just the purest and I think most entertaining form of racing that exists. So Tracksmith has a collection that celebrates that it's based around their Van Cortland line, um, which are some of their original pieces of apparel. So they've got some new colorways and fabrics in there. And they also have, we talked about this last time, the Brighton base layers. There's a short sleeve version and a long sleeve version. We're coming up on shoulder season as we get into fall here. I think these are the perfect pieces for that. It's made of a Merino wool blend and, super comfortable, lightweight, 
best of all, it does not smell when you sweat in it. Uh, my wife really appreciates that. You can wear these pieces as a base layer under another shirt or a jacket or just on their own. I mean, I wear the short sleeve um, by itself a lot, and you know, I love it. It's perfect for this time of year, so I recommend checking that out. But if you buy anything on tracksmith.com, go to tracksmith.com slash Mario. There are two codes that you can use. If you are not a Tracksmith customer, you've never bought anything from them, use the code Mario New. That's M-A-R-I-O and then capital N, capital E, capital W. That will get you $15 off your first purchase of 75 bucks or more if you are a returning Tracksmith customer. I use this code myself because 5% of your purchase will go to benefit an organization that is near and dear to me. That's the Friendly House in Worcester, Massachusetts. That code is Mario Give. That's M-A-R-I-O, capital G, capital I, capital V, capital E. And when you use that code, you'll get free shipping on your order, but 5% of your purchase will go to the Friendly House in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is an organization that I chose because it's pretty much where I grew up. I went to after-school program there, summer program there, played bitty basketball there. They do a lot for the inner city in Worcester, Massachusetts, and I love that a percentage of purchases using that code through my partnership with Tracksmith um, go to help that organization do what they do best. So use it. Um, Thank you to Tracksmith for their continued partnership in sponsoring this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I love it. Our next sponsor is Gooder. Another longtime partner of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I love longtime partners. Gooder makes, I think, some of the best sunglasses for runners just some of the best sunglasses period they're super affordable most pairs of 25 to 35 bucks a piece they're stylish um we've talked about my preferences which are the ogs <laughs> pretty basic black and blue colorway but they have a lot of other fun stuff there uh they're polarized to protect your eyes um i mean what else can i say i wear them to run i wear them to drive i wear them to walk the dog i mean you know basically anytime that i'm outside and it's sunny out which is often here in california i've got a pair of gooders on my face and if you go to gooder.com slash mario that's g-o-o-d-r.com slash mario enter the code mario 15 that's m-a-r-i-o-1-5 when you check out that will get you free shipping on your order and as they like to say your face will thank you with that let's get to this conversation with the one and only brad stolberg Brad Stolberg, you are the first four-time guest of the Morning Shakeout podcast. It's always fun to talk to you, and I'm thrilled to welcome you back to the show. It is an honor. Well, there's a lot that I want to talk to you about. I want to talk about coaching. I want to talk about your new book, Master of Change, which as of this conversation is out now, where those two worlds kind of collide with one another. But most people listening to this probably know you for your writing all your columns on Outside and various other publications, your first book, Peak Performance, your most recent book before this one, Practice of Groundedness. But I mean, you also work as a coach. You work with executives, you work with entrepreneurs, you work with medical professionals, and it's a big part of how you spend your working time, but I think it also informs a lot of what you write about. So where I want to start with you today is just talking about coaching and in your experience, what is the role of a coach? I think the role of a coach is to walk someone's path with them, uh, most often beside them, sometimes trailing behind them, and 
every once in a while a little bit in front of them and to equip people with a large toolkit and also to teach them how and when to use those tools. Yeah, I like that. And it's similar to how I think about coaching. I mean, for me, the role of a coach is that of a co-pilot. Um, they don't have the wheel that's got to be, in my case, the athlete, in your case, you know, the CEO, the CFO, the entrepreneur. Uh, but I mean, as an experienced co-pilot, we're sitting right next to them and we're pointing out bumps along the way. We're telling them, you know what, I think we might want to go, you know, left here, uh, telling them to slow down, when to, you know, sort of like speed up. But ultimately, like we don't have control of the wheel. It's going to be on them to, you know, run the race, make the decisions, um, you know, that sort of that sort of thing. And it's just good to hear a similar perspective to that, because I've asked this question of a lot of people and I feel like the answers are all over the place. Yeah, I think the co-pilot um, is just another way of saying walking the path with someone um, yeah. and helping helping people see blind spots along the way mm -hmm. uh, and um, to show restraint in particular if someone's really pushing and that's their temperament. Mm -hmm. Maybe your job as that co-pilot is to say, hey, I think that this calls for restraint even if that feels uncomfortable. And if someone has the opposite temperament where they're really, really restrained, sometimes the role is to say, hey, I actually think you can put your foot on the gas a little bit more here. Yeah, um, trust it. And, and trust it, exactly. Yeah, uh, I agree with all of that. And I also think a big part of our role is to help keep things in perspective, too. I mean, I do a lot of that with my athletes. I'm sure that you do quite a bit of that with the folks that you work with, too. Yeah, and help people stay patient. You know, so much of... Um, so much of performance in really any discipline or domain is just a ruthless consistency of nailing the fundamentals and the, the basics. We do a lot of trying to over-control for variables beyond that, um, mm -hmm. but you can often chase your own tail trying to over-control for the day-to-day -day weather changes um, when, in fact, so much of sustainable excellence is just about having such a solid foundation of nailing the fundamentals day in and day out. And I think that's true if you're trying to be a world-class athlete. It's true if you want to be a world-class leader, a world-class physician, a world-class researcher, underlying sustainable excellence. The domains are different, but the principles are the same. Yeah. How did you get into coaching? I got into coaching after my first book, which I co-authored with Steve Magnus, came out. Uh, it's called Peak Performance. And that was, at the time, a pretty groundbreaking book. It's funny to look back now, the better part of a decade, and so much of what we wrote in there has become conventional wisdom. Uh, but at the time, it wasn't. And about a month after that book had come out, I started to receive a flurry of emails from people asking if I do any coaching. And um, at the time, I was living in the Bay Area, and executive coaching or entrepreneurial coaching was a thing there. And to me, it was brand new. I thought that coaches are for athletes. I didn't think that a founder needed a coach or that an executive needed a coach. Um, but I quickly learned otherwise, and I was very hesitant at first. I'm not a therapist. I don't have any kind of coaching certification. All I really did was write this book. And I distinctly remember reaching out to someone named Ed Batista, who I know that you're also getting to know now. And um, Ed was a really well-known and still is a really well-known performance coach, uh, but not to athletes, generally in his case to people working in um, high-growth startup companies. And I knew about Ed because he taught a class at Stanford called The Art of Self-Coaching, which was all about coaching in fields other than sport and how to coach yourself. And 
Red had included peak performance on his curriculum, which was really an honor that the Stanford faculty is using my book. So I shot Ed an email, and I said, I know you're a coach. I don't really know what that means. I'm not sure what, it, what I'm supposed to do, but um, would, you, would you want to get a coffee? And he was super receptive, and he became my, my mentor and um, really encouraged me to, to give it a go, even though at first it felt very uncomfortable. Yeah. Where did you go from there? Did you take on one client and just sort of dip your toes in and be like, let me just see if this is something that, you know, I can pursue? Or did you have the confidence after talking to Ed that it was something that you could do in a direction that you wanted to head in? The former. It was very incremental. I took on my first two clients pro bono. I did that for a few months Felt like they felt like at least it was a valuable thing for them, and I enjoyed the work. So then I took on my first paying client at a rate that is, I don't know, one-eighth of what I charge today, Mm -hmm. Um, and then very incrementally built it up to where it is today, where I've got a wait list, and at any given point, there are plenty of people out there that would love to be coached by me, for better and worse. Yeah. Knowing you and a bit about your background, I mean, you were a football player in we'll just call it a previous life. Then you got into endurance sports. You were really into triathlon and marathoning for a while. I know that, you know, certainly in the team sport environment, you worked with some coaches. I know when you were an endurance athlete, you were getting coached at, at times. I mean, looking back at your history of, of being coached, what did you learn from those that you worked with that you can apply to your practice today? Oh, all sorts of things. And uh, as being an athlete my whole life, I had both really good coaches and really bad coaches. And I think that you learn from both. Mm -hmm. I think the main thing is that a good coach coaches you towards independence, where you don't really need them, but you're still so glad that they're there. And a bad coach coaches you towards dependence, where you wish you didn't need them, but you do. And I think that that more than anything is what I learned from my own experiences with coaches. And then um, very fortunate to have Ed as a coaching mentor. And then someone named Stu McMillan and Dan Path, who many people know in the running community because these are iconic, legendary coaches of sprint and power athletes. And um, was fortunate to have developed a relationship with the two of them very early on and got to shadow them in some of their work and um, has just learned so much from both of them and Stu in particular. Yeah. Uh, Spoiler for those of you listening to this, Stu is going to be a guest in this Coach to Coach series. And I can't wait to have that conversation because, I mean, he is just like a wealth of knowledge and and experience, certainly in the world of sprinting and power sports, but I think just just coaching and leadership in general. And I'm I'm super excited to hear that. But he's one of the smartest people I've ever met. Yeah, he's um, very much a polymath. Uh, I mean, he just has every every time that I've read something by him, I'm like, huh, it's just like interesting the threads that he can pull on um, and bring them back to, you know, what ultimately helps people to perform at a higher level and be the fullest version of themselves. But without going too far, like down that road, let's get down to like brass tacks. Like what were some of the things that you learned from Ed, from Stu, from Dan in particular? I think three things. Um, The first is just, as I mentioned earlier, a relentless focus on the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I mean by the fundamentals are sleep, nutrition, physical health. Big part of that is movement, uh, community, 
and for some people, spirituality, not for everyone. Although everyone, I think, benefits from experiencing awe in their life. So if for those that hear spirituality and get defensive, I would just say the experience of awe, of transcendence, of getting beyond your small everyday self. And the reason that I always come back to those because you can't really control who's going to say what in a board meeting or what investor is going to do or what HR problem you're going to have in trying to just makes you miserable. Like that stuff is so unpredictable. But if you have a really, really, really solid and robust foundation, then when those things come along, you're in a better position to confront them. Mm. So I think whereas a lot of people focus on the top of the iceberg, I'm more interested in the bottom of the iceberg. Um, in, in really never leaving any of that behind. I think the second thing is to not have an either-or relationship with these foundational elements that run through someone's career and lifetime and then what's happening day-to-day. So the only framework that I have for my coaching clients is I care about three things. The foundational practices that I just mentioned, where you want to be in two to five years, and then what you're struggling with day-to-day. And we don't have to spend equal time across those things, but my job is to make sure that we never leave any one of those three two behind. We never get too sucked up in the day-to-day that we forget about what's the point of this, where are you trying to get to. We never just focus so much on the foundational stuff that you leave day-to-day crises at the side when they need to be dealt with. And then the third thing, which is something that I stole directly from Stu McMillan, is... um, just the notion that performance, human performance, is a complex system. And complex systems have multiple interacting parts where if you change any one of those parts, it's going to have downstream effects, and you don't know what they're going to be. It's by definition complexity. And in a complex system, if you try to over-engineer any one part, you tend to have problems elsewhere. So rather than try to make any parts a 10 out of 10, if you can just get everything between a 6 and an 8 out of 10, then the emergent property, the overall performance, gets really close to a 10. Whereas if you try to make any part of something a 10, the emergent property, the overall performance, tends to actually be worse. So in more layperson's terms, good enough across the board is how you get to great. Trying to be great in one area often is how you blow yourself up. Yeah. Stu talked a lot about that on your podcast, The Growth Equation, hosted by you and, and Steve Magnus. And I stole, totally stole that from him as well and just tweaked it a little bit for, you know, for my own needs. And I mean, that was eye-opening for a number of reasons. The ones that you just described, like just this complex system and what the downstream effects are going to be. But also, it just kind of like opened my eyes. I'm like, oh, like performance is performance, right? And it's like the X's and O's might be a little bit different. And, you know, the specifics of, you know, running versus running a business are are going to be a bit different. But, you know, those foundational elements are essentially the same. Like a lot of the orders of operations are are the same. Um, And it's just, it's just interesting to me and like, you know, kind of fascinating and like validating and reassuring that it's like, it's all, it's all pretty similar. Like performance is, is performance. And like, we can take these lessons and principles and apply them to our pursuit of running or how we run our company. But I think they also apply to other areas of your life as well. You know, the metaphor that's often used in sport that I think is very apt is um, this notion of sharpening the, sh- the sword. Mm-hmm. And like a sword with like a really durable, thick shaft is going to get you through all kinds of different contests or competitions. But then when it's actually time to toe the start line or s- step into the arena, yeah, you want to spend a couple weeks before sharpening it for that particular use. But if you have a really solid, thick, robust shaft, then 
you can sharpen it every once in a while, but what's important is that that base is is there and it's strong. Yeah. At what point of, of your coaching journey did you start to connect those dots? Was it right away where you're like, oh, this is a lot of the same stuff that I learned as an athlete or my coaches started to impart on me as an athlete and it helped you to be more confident in working with executives and entrepreneurs and others for the first time? I think so. I think it was pretty early on uh, just because I had spent so much time in in various sporting contexts that I saw parallels. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think as... I progressed as a coach, this notion of coaching towards independence. Um, I was doing it more, but it got harder to do because as a coach, it really can highlight your own insecurity. So if you feel like your job is to say something or to offer counsel and suddenly you're doing less and less of that, there can be this temptation to just like assert yourself and talk simply because you want to prove your value. Like These people are paying me a ton (laughs) of money. Like I better talk. When in fact, they actually don't really need you to talk and sometimes talking gets in the way of them doing it for themselves. Now, it's not to say that you should just sit there, you know, like a psychodynamic therapist and be a reflection. The job of a coach is to push and is to provide perspective. But as you develop a relationship with someone and as you get more comfortable as a coach, generally you do a lot less perspective giving and talking and a lot more listening and maybe just like tweaking one or two things. And to this day... I still will have um, coaching sessions where I just feel like I was like not on my game or I was fatigued and I didn't really provide any value. I'm thinking this in my head. And then an hour later, I'll get a text message from that client saying like, that was a breakthrough coaching session. Thank you. And there are other days where I feel like I'm firing on all cylinders and I don't get any message. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm laughing as, as you describe that because I feel that way on a pretty regular basis. Um, and it's the same thing. I mean, you know, as a running coach, like I write out people's programs and I think as a younger coach years ago, and this is something I think I've improved upon over time is I thought I needed to write the most complex looking training plan. That's what people were paying me for and to be, you know, super descriptive and, you know, to be, to be fancy. And I mean, there's this like Morgan Spurlock quote that I love. It's like, once you get fancy, fancy gets broken. And it's just like coming down to like, what is it that you need to say? Can you say it as like directly as, you know, as possible. And you find that that is often the most effective route, you know, to go with someone or beyond just the X's and O's, like the conversations you have with athletes. It's like, I think, you know, to prove your value or that, you know, it's worth what someone is is paying you, you tend to like over explain and over, you know, over talk things. And, um, and it's often those times when I feel like, yeah, I'm doing my job. I'm like, they're getting their money's worth. And then in the, in the reflections, like, I just, it would have been better if I just kept my mouth shut. They would have they would have figured it out on their own type of thing. So it's it's interesting to hear that you go through the exact same experience. And in my role as well, particularly when I'm working with someone on non-athletic pursuits, uh, it's also just to really be 100% in their corner. Mm-hmm. And I've now had, I don't want to use actual names, so let me count. I've coached people through four major transitions out of the job that they were in three of which the company was paying for my services. But that's like in the contract. If a company is going to pay for me to coach someone, I don't share anything with the company and I'm there to serve the interest of the client. And those have been actually some of the most powerful coaching relationships because you're really helping someone see like that they're swimming in water and they don't know what's outside of that water, but there's actually a lot that's outside of the water that might be a better fit. Um, So I think one difference perhaps between the work that I do and the work that you do is... um, in many cases, I'm that person's only 
truly objective in their corner support because their manager might coach them, but their manager wants to retain them and also like wants them to do a certain thing that's going to help their manager. Same thing with the company. Um, even within a relationship, there's often dynamics where like it's scary if someone's going to leave their job. And even if you have the most supportive partner in the world, their job is not to sit there and navigate your career with you because then the relationship just starts revolving around your work, which is not great. Uh, so I really think that that's another big part of my role is just to be that person that is unequivocally in someone's corner in my only responsibility is to that person's excellence. And obviously I define what that means to them. Yeah. I don't think that's too different from like what I and other running coaches or just sport coaches do as well, because I I think my main job is to always be honest with someone about, you know, where they're at. And oftentimes that'll involve me telling them not what they, they want to hear, but what they, they need to hear. And I imagine you do quite a bit of that in your role as well. For sure. And this gets back to helping people with their, their blind spots. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I find is, you know, and I'm sure there's some selection bias, I'm, I'm more often than not telling people that they can own their seat and that they can have the confidence to do something that they're not sure that they can do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another really important part of my role. So very rarely am I getting people that, you know, want to do something. I'm like, I don't think you're ready. Often I'm getting people that don't think they're ready. And I can see so clearly that they're as ready as they're going to be. And um, there's no way to be more ready other than to take the leap. And sometimes that means, um, you know, putting their hat in the table to move from a CMO or a CFO to CEO. Sometimes that means expanding their team by four new hires. Uh, It can mean all sorts of things. Yeah, I think that's it right there. I mean, what we do as coaches, whether it's athletes we work with, business people, whatever it happens to be, I mean, with with runners, it's like, I can see the potential in someone. And they're like, yeah, I, you know, I really just want to hit like that Boston qualifier. And I'll be like, yeah, I think you can hit the Boston qualifier, but I think, I think you're aiming too small. I think you could break, you know, 250 or whatever, or maybe you can qualify for the Olympic trials. It doesn't mean you're going to do it in 12 weeks, but you know, you have that, that kind of potential and they may not have seen that, you know, in themselves. And I think that's a big part of our role as, as coaches is like seeing that potential and, and like helping shine a light on it for people. And it's really scary to run a 5.30 pace if you've only run a six-minute pace. And to have someone that you trust say, I know you can run 5.30, um, that goes such a long way. Acknowledging that we're not perfect. And like sometimes that athlete spectacularly blows up and um, you feel really bad about that. But you learn from that and you try to identify patterns and you try to get a little bit better uh, over time. Yeah. I imagine it's probably, you know, a parallel to that in your world is like someone who's used to working with a smaller company or smaller teams, like, you know, a hundred people. And it's like, Hey, you know, you could scale this up to like a thousand or, or more or 10 exit or whatever, whatever it happens to be. And it's just like, that hadn't even crossed their mind. They thought it was going to be this like small to medium sized thing for the duration. Exactly. And the other way sometimes, and I'm sure this is like the athlete that you see is maybe like a little too focused on this one part of their career as a runner. Yeah. And they're getting a little bit too uh, tunnel vision, and they might be a lot more happier and fulfilled if you help them see differently. And for me, that's someone that just like wants to grow, 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 take venture money, take venture money. And I have to be like, well, do you know what that entails? It's kind of like, do you know what training for the qualifiers actually means for um, your time, for your energy, for your relationships, for your relationship with the sport? And sometimes it's the opposite, which is like, I actually think you'd be really happy just running a 15-person company and not having Mm -hmm. pressure to grow that fast right now. 
and this might be the athlete that comes to you that is, you know, four months pregnant, um, just got a new job, and wants to go sub-16 for a 5K. And I'm being extreme. But you're like, no, maybe now's not, like, the right season for that. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, this this all all resonates. A couple more questions on coaching before we switch topics to a related topic. But with the folks that you work with, what are some of the biggest challenges that you're helping them to work through? I think one is just not putting behind basic physical and mental health when things are well. Everyone wants to work on physical and mental health when things are a mess, but when things are really well, it's very easy to see that as a waste of time or I'm spending too much time on this or I could be spending more time trying to solve the thorny issues at work. Mm -hmm. And it can be challenging to keep people on the right track, which is why um, that whole good enough is good enough. You know, If I can get someone to just walk for 45 minutes briskly six days a week, then I have won the game. Uh, and anything else I do for that person in five years is going to be bonus. And, you know, busy people with money, buy a treadmill. I don't care how you do it. Um, but really get those habits dialed in for the long haul, not just when things don't feel good. Something else that often comes up is when somebody is just so accustomed to presenting to a particular audience, i.e. their colleagues or their board, their investors, um, sometimes they, they, they like miss the plot almost or like they, they only know one way of talking about this story and it's kind of the way that they're accustomed to in their own little orbit. And my job is to be like, have you considered like telling the story this way or maybe you're actually telling the wrong story uh, because that can be really helpful. And then for really senior leaders, it's just being someone that they can share stuff with that they truly can't share with anyone else. Mm-hmm. So uh, the most painful thing for any leader is to let people go. And you very rarely can share that you're going to let someone go until you actually do it because, you know, gossip happens in organizations. and It's just a terrible way to degrade trust. So um, having me there to kind of pour that on and me to absorb it and to be there for that person is really helpful. And sometimes it's great news. Like, you know, no one at the company knows that they're about to raise a $40 million round, but the CEO knows and he just wants someone to party with, but he can't share that yet. Then I can be that person, too. Yeah, that made me think of parallel, you know, in in my world. It's like when I can see someone like putting in the work and I know that they're ready for a a breakthrough and it's just, it's going to happen. And we don't want to celebrate before it does, but it's like this little secret sort of like between the two of us, like everyone's about to see that, you know, you're going to have this big breakthrough, you know, in the marathon type of thing. And and those can be like fun moments beforehand because we like, you know, both know it's like, oh, something big's like really, really going to happen. You can share that experience, which I think is pretty special. Yeah. And I think that if the person I'm coaching after like we come to an insight or an action in hindsight is like, that's so obvious. That's where I feel really comfortable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When they're like, I don't know about that still. Then I'm like, oh, I don't know about that either. Like, unless I really, I really know. And then on that, you know, cause I use the word insight. I think part of an effective coach and my therapist colleagues, I would say the exact same thing. Part of an effective therapist is going from insight to action. And the insight is often the super exciting, intellectually, emotionally stimulating thing that you tell your significant other about and your friends about. But the insight is just an insight. And it's not until you actually start working on it that there's change. 
Mm-hmm. And a part of my job is to go from the excitement of the aha moment to the grunt work of now what are you going to do about it. So the metaphor that I use is you've got this toothache and no one can figure out why your tooth is hurting or your jaw's hurting. And you get x-rays and you see specialists and on and on and on. It's been four months. And then finally you wind up with a person that says, you know, I think I want to look like behind your molar. And there's this huge abscess there. And there's just this well of relief because now you know what the problem is. You've identified the root and you call your friends. It was an abscess. It was an abscess. Well, you got to brush your teeth for the next six months to get rid of that abscess. And you weren't brushing your teeth before. And great. Now that we discovered that and you feel like you got your money's worth, I'm happy for you, but you haven't gotten your money's worth. You haven't gotten your money's worth until you start brushing your teeth every single day. And another part of my job is to get people from like the bright and shiny intellectual insight to the often boring mundane work to make the desired behavior change or organizational change that they need. Yeah. That makes me think of something that um, the writer Austin Kleon wrote about. He's like, to, to be the noun, you've got to do the verb. And I see this, you know, I want to be a sub three marathoner in, in my world, or I, I want to be a runner. And people oftentimes like think about it, obsess about it, talk all about it. It's like, well, you got to, you got to, do the work uh, in order to do that. Like you got to start running. And I think, you know, it sounds very like, yeah, duh, like that, that's what you have to do. But I mean, I see so many people get paralyzed by that. Um, you know, it's like they, they can, they can see it, but it's like the, the taking action part is often hard. And I think that's, you know, where we can come in handy as coaches sometimes. Yeah. And that's what accountability is all about too. And coach obviously provides a lot of that. Yeah. One last comment on the kind of the first challenger that, that you described, it made me think of, um, this Kurt Vonnegut quote from Hocus Pocus is something along the lines of like one of the biggest flaws in human character, uh, is that everyone wants to build and no one wants to do the maintenance. And, um, I love that. that. I mean, that, that just applies across, you know, so many, you know, so many different things. And I mean, I definitely think of it in like a running, you know, context, but I think it's exactly as, you know, what, what you described. It's like, yeah, I'm, things are good. Like let's build, 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 build. And, you know, it's like that, that important maintenance that's going to help to like keep this thing, you know, upright or afloat for the long haul. If you're not doing that maintenance, you're going to get in trouble. Yeah. Your clients might not like you telling them that, like, as you were saying that I was thinking it's kind of like in those situations we're the regulator. So -hmm. the airline company just wants to build, but the regulators, like you got to maintain, you got to fill out these forms and do the safety checks yeah, and have the redundancies because all it takes is one catastrophic crash. Uh, and in my case, it's someone just making a horrible decision or burning themselves out. In your case, it's someone, you know, femoral stress fracture, ruptured Mm -hmm. Achilles, whatever. And in the case of an airplane, it's a crash. Uh, but no one likes doing the maintenance. That's why regulators force people to do it. And I think like a good coach is hopefully a little bit uh, more beloved than a, an aviation regulator, <laughs> sure. but that is a part of our job. That's part of the job. Yeah. It, I couldn't agree more. All right. Last bit specifically on, on coaching in the years that you have been working with executives, entrepreneurs, et cetera, how have you grown the most as a coach? I think that it gets back to this confidence that I don't need to prove my value anymore. And particularly for clients who I've been working with for a long time, my job is really just to be there for them. And that's okay. And I don't have to question, like, are they not getting their value worth? Because if they weren't, they would no longer work with me. I think working with someone for the first year is really easy in a lot of cases. 
because generally speaking, that person's read at least one of my books and now they like mm-hmm. want to implement stuff and there's all kinds of low hanging fruit. That's why they're coming to me. But after a year, it's like, I've taught you what I know. And, um, it can feel pretty insecure to be like, well, what's left? Uh, and I've tried to like kindly fire clients. Like, you know, I'm not sure there's much more of it you need from me. And they're like, no, no, no. Like this, this hour session a month is so important to me. And I just have to be okay with that. Uh, and realize that that's the walking with someone. So maybe the first year of a relationship, you're walking ahead of them on the path and you're kind of showing them the way, but once you've shown them the way and now they've caught up to you, you still like, you can't abandon them. Or at least if they don't want to be abandoned, if they don't want to walk solo, then your job is just to be there. Uh, and that's okay. And I think it's important for a coach to have a mix, um, of, of people because otherwise, like, you know, you can start to get a little bit rusty on teaching the stuff as you just start to walk with, uh, but that's a that's a real challenge. You know, the people that I've been working with for five years, the relationship's a lot different than the people that I've been working with for four months. Um, but I think that that's okay. And I think the five-year people, we still do the maintenance. And then it is a lot more like day-to-day or this came up with the board or I'm really struggling with this uh, ability to shut down this evening. And we just spend more time there because they're pretty good at using the blunt force tools that we've worked on in the past. Yeah, I agree with all that. I mean, for me, the, you know, the first few months of a new coaching relationship are always the most challenging because we're getting to know each other, how the other operates, responds to different things. And if I go back to the co-pilot analogy, it's like I'm, I'm doing a lot more explaining, you know, and teaching and, you know, pointing at like, no, 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 hit, you know, hit, hit this button, like go left. And then like over time, it's like, I can just say less. Uh, they just sort of know. And, and I think, you know, if I've essentially to, to your point, like coached myself out of a job, but they still feel better with me in that, in that passenger seat next to them, then I think that's when I'm in the right place. And that's where like speaking for myself, like that's where I still have to do the work to be like, no, we're good. Like, don't, don't interject here. You don't need to. Like, they're yeah, going like, to be fine. Just, just keep flying the plane the way that you are. Or if you're going to change course, do it in the, the littlest way. And then we get to learn from clients. Like, we get to see them crush it and be like, wow, like, look how this person's crushing it. That's a new tool for me to add to my toolkit. Yeah, 100%. And I think to the last thing that, that you said just before that, I mean, for me, I, I like working with a wide range of, of athletes, both in terms of their experience level, um, but also ability level and also the disciplines that they're they're focusing on. Because I found when I'm too focused on, let's just say, like uh, competitive marathoners, I, I get stale, um, you know, and I take I start to like take things for granted and uh you know, and I say this in a bad way, like we'll go on autopilot, you know, and I, and I'm not like quite paying the attention that I need to, but I think working with like a wide range of, of people, it's, it's, if nothing else, just a good reminder of like what things people are struggling with at different parts of, you know, of their journey. And you can kind of take from one and apply it to someone else and so on and so forth. I think that I enjoy coaching the most very much in the same vein when my panel is split between founders and entrepreneurs in the startup world. Mm. Uh, more endemic executives, so people at Fortune 500 companies, CFOs, CIOs, CEOs, uh, and then physicians um, who are in leadership roles. Obviously, I'm not coaching them on their clinical practice. I'm not a doctor. Um, And then the couple of times that I've had elite athletes just reach out for like one-off counsel, um, that's always a lot of fun too. And that gets back to like performance is performance. Again, I'm not not writing their program for them, um, but the stuff in between the ears, I really like working with that cohort too. Yeah, that's a good segue. And without naming names for privacy reasons, but I know that you have worked with some pretty high level athletes as they've transitioned away from 
their life as a professional, all that they've known for the last decade, two decades, maybe even longer in some cases. And the theme of that is just change. And that is also the subject of, of your new book, Master of Change. And I, I, I have to imagine, like in your coaching practice, you work with people through change, the company's growing, someone's leaving, you know, so on and, and so forth. When did you really start thinking about like, I mean, you're probably always thinking about this topic, I imagine, but just something that you wanted to really dive deep in uh, and make it your next book? Two things. In my own life, I experienced all manner of pretty significant changes in a very compressed period of time. And um, I couldn't help but realize that things just felt like they were changing faster than ever before. And that was really curious for me. And the same time, we were early in the pandemic, and I kept reading coverage that was framed in the spirit of when are things going to get back to normal. Mm. And I didn't know what it was about that framing at the time, but it viscerally, like, triggered me. It just made me so frustrated. And, like, how is everybody thinking about getting back to normal? We're never going to get back to normal. And I distinctly remember being in um, in the kitchen in Asheville and on my wife's iPad and reading all these articles, back to normal, back to normal. And I went to my computer and I'm like, why does everyone associate back to normal with change? And I start scrolling down. This is just a basic Google search. And the word homeostasis comes up. And I'm like, I know about homeostasis. Let me start reading this. And um, that was kind of the the first steps into what became this book. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting to, to hear you describe that. And I, I can't not think about how it applies to to coaching. And I see this with athletes as they get older or as they get over an injury, it's like, oh, I want to be back to where I was, um, like kind of this back to normal type of thing. I'm like, well, that, that's just not going to happen. You're a different athlete now. You've gone through different experiences, and that's going to inform our, our path forward. And I think that means we might have to do things differently. That means you could be better, you know, quit longing for the past, you know, type of thing. And I, I feel like whether it's sport or just our day-to-day life or or business, um, many of us have that that mindset where we get to a point where things are changing. We're like, we just want it to be back the way that it used to be, um, you know. And I've I've certainly experienced that, you know, in, in my life, uh, athletically, professionally, and even like you know personally, you know, after you know after loss, and it's like, ah, oh, well, I I just want things to be like they were, you know, five years ago. And it's like, well, that's right. There's a reason that there's so many athlete stories in the book. I think that um, mm-hmm. athletes experience change in a very compressed way just because most athletes' careers are shorter. So what someone would normally go through in the span of like a 90-year life, athletes often go through by the time they're 30, which also makes transition out of sports so hard for so many mm-hmm. athletes. Um, but that is a very common trap. And it's rooted in this, this homeostatic view of change, which says that the goal of any living system is to stay stable at all cost. And whenever there's instability, to get back to stability – And that has been the prevailing model of change for the last 150 years. And only more recently, in the past decade or so, has the scientific community stepped back and said, actually, that's not really an accurate model for change. Um, Healthy systems don't get back to where they were after a period of disorder. They reorient somewhere new. So the shorthand way to think of it is if homeostasis describes change as a pattern of order, disorder, order, X to Y to X. Allostasis describes change as a pattern of order, disorder, reorder, or X to Y to Z. So we do crave stability. There's no doubt about that. We need stability to be healthy, but that stability is always recreating itself somewhere new. 
And the poetic is in the etymology of these words. Homo means same. Stasis is standing. So same standing. Homeostasis means stability by staying the same. And allo means variable. And that means stability through change or stability by changing. And that's the name of the game. Like the old worldview homeostasis that has crept into every area of our life is just not an accurate representation of how to navigate change. Yeah. In in your own life, like rewinding a, a few years to, let's just say like right before the pandemic. I mean, you and I have known each other a long time. So I'm like privy to what was was happening. I mean, you moved across the country. You let's had go back. Yeah, let's go back even a little bit before that. Sure. Because um, I, I would start it with pretty stark onset obsessive compulsive disorder and secondary depression that totally rocked my world. We've talked about that in a prior podcast. Don't have to rehash that. Listeners can go back. Um, recovering from that, which was a year process. Mm-hmm. But still, like, talk about order, disorder, reorder, and just feeling like in many ways a new person. Uh, having our son, Theo, um, before moving across the country, no, that was, yeah, before moving across the country, realizing that I just could not compete in endurance sports because uh, orthopedic issue with my calf. And that I was just butting my head up against the wall trying, and, and there, was no, there was nothing more to do other than shift my physical activity. And endurance sports have been a huge part of my identity and my community and what I did with my time and where my friends were. So leaving that behind, uh, then moving across the country, um, publishing my first book without Steve, uh, having a second child, um, a very painful family estrangement, um, writing this book, becoming homeowners for the first time, and... um, major surgery on that same leg that unfortunately didn't get me back into endurance sports, but allowed me to do more than I could do before. And this is all within the last six and a half years. Yeah. And at what point of that, I mean, aside from the research that you did leading up to to this book, like in, in your mind, thinking back where you were able to like see the light bulb go off and be like, oh, we're not going back. Like this is like order, disorder, reorder. And I've got to get comfortable with that. Otherwise, this is going to be just like a really challenging path forward. I think that it happened mainly and most acutely with the injury slash illness. So with the OCD and then with my calf, Um, because it just gets so stark that like you – like. Working on trying to get back to X is just going to leave you in this state of chaos. And you're going to go through an uncomfortable period, but eventually you got to end up at Y. And you don't necessarily know where that Y is. Um, But trying to get back to what it was like before is a fool's errand and is just going to be the cause of so much suffering. Yeah. And you had those two things happening like simultaneously um, from from what I remember. I mean, I remember the last marathon that you – trained for. We did that long weekend away with the guys. And that was sort of like kind of where you started to really struggle, I think, you know, emotionally, you know, as well. And those two things were, were happening kind of at once. And like, just as your friend who was in touch with you frequently during that time. um, Yeah, it was like, it was tough to see you sort of like struggle with that because I think you were like, all right, if I can just do like X, Y, and Z, maybe I can get back to, you know, this part with the marathon and give myself like you know, a shot to do what I want to do, um, that sort of thing. 
Yeah, I think that that's it. And I think there's something about a, a physical or mental ailment that um, – like it's just in your own body. Like you can't problem solve what you feel. Uh, if you feel pain, be it physical or emotional, you can't really delude yourself out of that. And by trying to delude yourself out of it, the pain just gets worse. Um, so I think that in my own life, that was really where I realized uh, that that reorder was the only way. Um, I think having a kid makes you realize it really fast in terms of sleep schedules and your relationship with your partner and how you spend your time and your work habits and control over your day. Same kind of thing. If you fight that, you're just going to end up suffering. Yeah. You're not going back to what it was like pre-kid. So that's another like really good teacher. Um, And I think by the time we moved, I did a pretty good job of realizing like I can't compare this new place to where I lived. I can't compare people I just met here to my best friends back home. Um, I have to be okay with the fact that it's probably not going to be as good. In some ways, it will never be as good, but it can be different, and it can be better in different ways, and that's not going to happen overnight. Um, So I think that like all these things in my own personal life, I was seeing it, but I didn't have the language for it at the time. I just knew intuitively that the more I fought change and the more I fought to get back to where I was, the worse I felt and did. The more that I accepted change and realized that I need to get through this period of disorder and I do need to get to stability, but that stability has got to look like something different, the better I felt and did. Yeah. In in going through this process, I mean, one of the things that you have written about extensively in the past and also in, in this book is just the importance of core values. And like, I'd love to hear just from the horse, horse's mouth while I have you in front of me, like, why are these essential when it comes to navigating change? I mean, so you have this order, disorder, reorder, you know, things are in flux, but these core values generally are like very, you know, foundational, like to go back to your last book, like they're what keep you grounded, um, you know, so that you can navigate all of this disorder that's happening around you. So why don't we just go a little bit deeper on, on core values and their importance when navigating change? The metaphor that I love for change is that of a river. Mm -hmm. And uh, a river is constantly flowing. There's a very famous quote from the Greek philosopher Heraclitus who says that you can't step into the same river twice. And I think in many ways, he's talking about our own sense of identities, ourselves. Like we are never the same person. On a biological level, our cells are turning over every minute. And on a psychological level, as we live our lives, we're constantly evolving. And yet we are the same person. Like you're still Mario, I'm still Brad, but we're always flowing. So it's kind of like a river, right? Like a river is a very real, concrete, objective phenomenon that you can look at and say there's a river, but you can never look at the same river twice. It's always changing. And um, I think that that is true of ourselves and the fluidity of our identities and ourselves over time. However, what no one that I came across paid attention to is that there's another component of a river that's really important, which is its bank. And if a river doesn't have a bank, it's just a random puddle of water. It's not nearly as poetic. The metaphor falls apart. And what a bank of a river does is it guides the flow. It guides how the river changes and evolves over time. And I think for ourselves, our core values are essentially like the bank. They're the rugged boundaries that guide our personal evolution and how we confront uncertainty and change over the course of our lives. So core values are ultimately what help us navigate uncertainty and change in periods of disorder to end up at a new reorder. They are the one thing that can almost never be taken away. How we apply those core values 
often does and has to change. But the value themselves, health, love, authenticity, vulnerability, respect, integrity, trust, these are just some examples, creativity, intellect, wisdom, um, that's the stuff that then when you feel like you're in a period of disorder or when the external environment around you has shifted so much, you can say, well, what would a healthy person do? And what would a wise person do? What would the creative thing to do be? And to go from more esoteric down to the ground level, let's take a core value of health. It's a very common one. Well, before you have two infants or two young kids, health looks very different than after. But if your core value is health, you can still say, what's the healthy thing to do right now? And you can still act on that core value, even though how you act on that core value is changing. Uh, Creativity. In a world where AI, and I'm skeptical of this world, but maybe it'll come to be in a world where AI is doing more and more work, you can still be creative. You're just going to have to apply it in new ways than writing a first draft of text if the robots are doing that. Um, so the values can can come with you wherever you go, and they can guide your your evolution over time. Do you think it's impossible to navigate change without knowing your core values? Yeah, I mean, otherwise you're just like that puddle of water. Like, what are it's, it's chaos. Um, in in the book, I talk about the these kind of two extremes. So one extreme is a very rigid sense of self with rigid core values rigidly applied. And we know based on tons of psychological research that that kind of rigidity leads to uh, high levels of neuroticism, anxiety, restlessness, and eventually depression. On the other hand, no core values, no sense of what makes you who you are. Maybe if you're on a spiritual enlightenment retreat for a protected period of time, you could call that like a spiritual awakening. But most of the time, that is psychosis. And that is also not a place that you want to be. So the goal is to exist in the middle, to have a sense of who you are, and to always have that stability, but to hold it loosely enough that it can change. And that's where this term that comes up again and again in the book, rugged flexibility, comes from. Like the values are rugged, but you better be flexible with how you think about them and apply them. Yeah. Did you come up with that on your own, or is that something that's popped up elsewhere in the literature? As far as I know, I came up with that on my own. It's got a very funny, um, a very funny origin story. So some inside baseball. When I was first writing the proposal for the book, we just had like no title or like no new word. And I was talking a lot about homeostasis versus allostasis. But, um, you know, allostasis, like, number one, it doesn't have the same ring as rugged flexibility. Number two, it's different. Like, allostasis is the process. Rugged flexibility is this term I've coined for how to navigate it. And I was on the phone with our mutual friend, Dave Epstein, um, Mm -hmm. who's a wonderful runner and member of the running community and writer and member of the the author community in, in his own right. And I'm like, dude, like, I need a title for this book. I need, like, the central word. I know exactly what I'm talking about describing, but I don't have the word. And Dave is like, I think you should call it the supple moose. And I'm like, why? And this is classic Dave. He's like, it just sounds cool. (laughs) And I'm like, well, do you know anything about like a moose and like how a moose weather has changed? Dave's like, no, Google it though. Like maybe there's something there. I think you should call it the supple moose. So (laughs) I spent like two days like trying to force this model on like a moose. And then like all creative ideas, in the process of like trying to force the supple moose on this, I was showering one day and I'm just like, I should call this rugged flexibility. It came to you. Yeah. So almost this, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? It's like 
Okay, Eureka moment? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's interesting about that is they're obviously in contrast to each other. I mean, it's like, how can you be rugged and flexible, you know, sort of at at the same time? But I mean, you just did a good job describing that. And that's why I think the supple moose led to it. Because like, you don't think of a moose as supple. Supple, right. And um, who knows if Dave's right. Dave thinks to this day that a book called The Supple Moose would just sell a gazillion copies because it's like so catchy. Um, Well, think of it. I mean, Seth Godin, the master of marketing, has a book called The Purple Cow, right? And, And it's like... I mean, you just, you're like, that's interesting, you know? And I actually th- thought of um, another mutual friend of ours, Kelly Sturette, has a book right on my shelf over here called The Supple Leopard. But it's like, all right, leopards are supple. Like, those two things actually yeah, go together. Yeah, and, and, and that's more like on the nose. He's yeah. talking about, like, actual, like, you know, supple muscle tissue and flexibility. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, people don't think of supple and moose together. I guess people don't think of rugged and flexible together. But my whole argument is that we either think that we should just be rugged or we should just be flexible when, in fact, the way to navigate change is to be both at the same time. Well, from today forward, I'm going to refer to Master of Change as the supple moose book. Uh, and whether you like it or not, that's what it's called. Thank you, Dave Epstein. I think that is absolutely brilliant. Uh, and Brad really, like, missed the boat on not calling this the supple moose. But um, a couple more things before – we wrap up. Um, number one, I mean, one thing I think we can all agree on about change is that it's uncomfortable. I mean, some people are more comfortable than others, but I think of, you know, the phrase that now has just been like completely bastardized, certainly in sports and other places, but it's like, it's like, uh, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. I mean, we talk about that all the time as endurance athletes, but it applies to many other areas of, of, of life too. But I mean, just to use that one, what are some ways that we can, we can do that? Like when we are going through change, maybe when we're in that period of disorder, you know, that you, that you describe, you know, we have, you know, our banks are in place, but you know, that water is flowing, um, very, you know, very rapidly. I mean, that's a harrowing moment sometimes. I mean, sometimes just like a little uncomfortable. Other times you're like, Jesus Christ, if I, if I let go here, like I'm going to be, I'm going to be gone, um, type of thing. So what are ways that we can, you know, just get comfortable being uncomfortable? So what you're describing is the disorder part, right? And there's no avoiding it. Like the cycle of change is order, disorder, reorder. So whether it's trivial and it happens in a moment, like you've got plans for the day and your dog has diarrhea on the ground and now your day's thrown off, like you're going to go through some disorder. And if you handle it skillfully, it should only be a couple minutes versus much bigger stuff. Your Achilles pops when you're a professional runner. You get laid off from your job. You get a terrible health prognosis. You suffer loss. Um, but it's the same cycle. The, the intensity and the scale of it is all that's different. So I want to talk about prevention and then what to do in the moment. I think they're both really important. So in researching and reporting this book, the number one thing I came across for prevention is to diversify your sense of identity. So to have multiple components to how you conceive of yourself. Because if your identity is only one thing, and that mm-hmm. one thing changes, then your whole world is blown up. It's disorder. Whereas if you have multiple parts of yourself, when that one thing changes, hopefully you can seek refuge elsewhere. Uh, the metaphor I like to use here is it's really good to think of your identity like a house. And you want to have a couple rooms in your house. Because if you just live in a one-bedroom studio apartment and that room floods or you know a bomb goes off in that one room, well, then your entire life is discombobulated. Whereas if you have a few other rooms, you can go seek refuge in those other rooms and lean on those other rooms for support. So this is why it's so important, particularly for elite athletes, professional athletes, to 
have a family life, a community life, some hobbies, just other ways that they think about themselves. I think this is one of the reasons that a lot of elite athletes that do really well psychologically are deeply religious. Uh, because even if they're not actually spending time in church, if they identify as a Christian or whatever the religion might be, then when shit hits the fan on athletes, and as an athlete, they can say, well, I'm still a Christian. Um, I think this is why having kids is one of the best things that can happen to some people because then they can say, well, I'm still a father, I'm still a mother, I'm still a parent. Um, in the case of uh, you know our, our, our mutual friend Shalane Flanagan, her off-road from sport and having the whole cookbook and chef and um, someone that is really serious about eating disorders and athletes' identity was so helpful because she could have this off-ramp from massive change in the running room from athlete to coach. She could lean into the cookbook stuff uh, mm -hmm. to provide some stability. So diversifying your sense of self, I think, is super important. Um, to interrupt here, I yeah. imagine that's something you see a fair bit of with the clients that you work with. Yeah, it gets back to that complex system. Like, you can't just be a 10 at this one thing. You have to have some social health, and a part of social health is relationships. Um, you have to have some, like, intellectual or spiritual or awe. And a part of that is just, like, getting beyond this narrow, this narrow worldview. Um, people always talk about Michael Jordan, and there are certain people, Michael Jordan was one of them, where when you have the weight of your entire identity and all that pressure on your back, it actually helps you perform. But the vast majority of elite performers do better if they don't carry that pressure into the arena. Mm -hmm. um, the story I tell in the book is of the speed skater Niels Vanderpool, who won the 10K and 5K at the recent Winter Games. He set the world record, so he's the best to ever live. And um, you got to read the book for the details because we don't have time. But the moral of the story is he was underperforming for a little while and traced it back to fear that he was feeling before competing. And he traced that fear back to the fact that he wouldn't know who he was if he wasn't a speed skater. So in the lead up to the Olympics, in addition to focusing on his training, he focused on doing things that normal people do, making friendships, going out for pizza, getting beers, getting really into reading books. And as a result, that fear lifted because he knew that even if he didn't perform in the oval, he still had mm -hmm. value and meaning as a person. Yeah. I think this is so important, especially to this audience that's listening to us now, because a lot of amateur athletes, most of the people that I work with, this is not their job, not how they put food on the table, make their living, but it's an important part of their life. They take it seriously. They train hard and they have other things. I mean, if you zoom out going on in their life, I mean, they have a partner, they may or may not have kids. Uh, they have some other interests, but when they're trying to break that three-hour marathon or qualify for Boston or whatever it is, they get this tunnel vision. And it's, it's I'm going to do that or it's a complete failure. And I have to have that same conversation with many folks oftentimes. It's like, hey, if you run 259.59 or you run, you know, you blow up and run 335 for some reason, your wife's still going to think that you're great. Your kid's going to be super proud of you. You still have something to go home to. You're still going to work on Monday. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't change anything. It sounds so simple, but it's like, I have those conversations a lot with the people that I work with because I think they get, um, so tied into their identity as a runner and that part of 
their life and almost take themselves too seriously and forget that they're much more than just the person who's trying to break the three-hour marathon or qualify for Boston. If they do that, great. It's like I want them to achieve their goal and experience that kind of happiness. Um, and it's important too because if they hit that goal, then oftentimes you have to remind them like, hey, you just did this amazing thing that you worked for, but it's, it's like your your wife's still there for you. You're still going to work tomorrow type of thing because those are the folks who more often than not, they fail to celebrate their accomplishment. You know, It's like on to the next thing. And I think people can get themselves into trouble when they have such a narrow focus and such a like strong hold on one part of their identity. That's uh, you said it beautifully, uh, and it's okay when you have a big goal to spend a lot of time in that room. You just got to make sure that like you don't close doors to the other rooms, mm-hmm. and that you're spending enough time in there where there's still a part of of who you are. I think someone like myself has perhaps an even more uh, complicated relationship with this, and I write about this in the book at length, uh, but. Sport was an enormous part of my identity from all the way back in second grade. Uh, So I got bullied really bad. My family moved. I went to a new school in second grade. Um, Today I was probably what you'd call like a highly sensitive or highly feeling kid. But back then they didn't have words for it. I was just like a softie. And kids can smell that from a mile away. And I was at this new school and I got bullied so hard. I'm talking like vomiting every morning before school out of angst from getting bullied. And the one time at school that I was safe was during recess because I was a damn good athlete. Going back to second grade, we played soccer, we played basketball. It didn't matter. Me and this girl, her name was Katie. We would just dominate. And it's like my only memory of second grade was like me and Katie on the soccer field, like me proving myself. But the older kids didn't care. They still would pick on me. So from second grade, like sport, sport's what I fell back on to have security. Uh, fast forward to sixth grade, I get jumped on the side of the road by these fucking punks in high school, just like truly kids. Hopefully they've, they've turned themselves around and now are fine human beings. But at the time, like alternative school, too dangerous to be in the school district. I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. I get jumped. Um, terrible anxiety uh, as a result of that, like not feeling safe in my own neighborhood. My parents, who were against letting me play football, changed their mind. They said, all right, you can play football. So what do I do? I get huge. Why? Because like, all right, like I need to be secure in my own body. Now mm-hmm. I have an excuse to do it. Yes, I like the sport, but the real reason I want to be captain of the varsity football team in Michigan where football matters is because I don't want to get jumped again. So boom, sport. Fast forward to college. Football is such a big part of my identity that even though I end up at the University of Michigan, I'm, I'm not good enough to play there. So I can't go to football games because, like, it hurts too much to be a part of football if I'm not actually playing. So I start getting into endurance sports. And I'm like a casual endurance athlete until my very serious girlfriend dumps me out of nowhere. So what's the best way to numb the pain when you get heartbroken and you're an endurance athlete? Just pour in those miles, baby. Bury yourself. So I go from running 5Ks to marathons to ultra triathlons, just burying myself. My identity, sport, 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 sport. So fast forward to a couple years ago, and now following this orthopedic issue and surgery and and my quote-unquote retirement from running, I'm back into strength training. And my genetics are really good for it. Uh, To put it in running terms, I've already done this for you, but for listeners, I could not get under a three-hour marathon it took me like seven months of strength training to get to 250 fitness. Like it's just what my body responds to. Yep. It's what I did growing up. Um, so I'm, I'm doing powerlifting, deadlift, bench press, and uh, squat. 
and I'm testing my lifts. And um, the guy here in Asheville that that coaches me, phenomenal coach Zach Greenwald, um, he's like, "Man, like you got to turn it on." And I'm like, "I can't." He's like, "Why not?" I'm like, "Because like I don't really care if I make the lift. Like I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm an author." Like, whether or not I hit this squat or this deadlift or this bench press, like, it just doesn't matter that much anymore. And it's this conundrum because, on the one hand, it is the healthiest, most, like, secure, mature place to approach this thing from. But on the other hand, it's, it's, it's not good for my deadlift. So, like, my new challenge is to try to figure out, like, can I turn it on and can I get the most out of myself when my entire identity isn't on the line, when I'm not doing this because I'm heartbroken, when I'm not doing this because I was bullied, when I'm not doing this because I was scared I was going to get jumped. So all, all these years, my performance in sport was to protect me. And now I'm like relearning how to try to perform from a place of just like I enjoy this and love. And it's hard. I, I'm healthier and I'm, a, and I'm a better person because of it. No doubt about it. But it's hard. <laughs> So I wanted to tell that story. I know we kind of got segued, but I, I just think it's a really interesting one because I think a lot of people um, enter sport, especially those that like have some natural talent. Like sport really comes during those formative years when you're awkward and, you know, I got bullied. Someone else is getting made fun of for another reason. Someone else is poor, whatever it is. But like so much of that that high school becoming an athlete, you find your people, you find your identity. And in high school, if you mess up, it's like the end of the world. Right. And now it's like, whatever, I missed Nobody the lift. Cares. Like, no one yep. cares. Yep. Like, the only person that cares is me, and I no longer care enough to bury myself. Yeah. That's no, my I'm, current challenge. I'm glad you shared that. I mean, you and I have talked about that offline, but um, I think it's relevant for a lot of folks who, who are listening to this. My, my one follow-up question to that is, what does that path moving forward look like for you? Is there you know, point where, you know, you still go to the gym because it's a good thing for you to do for your body and you enjoy it, but you're not going to try to PR the lift or enter competitions, which I know is something that, you know, you have been interested in, in more recent months. Like, what do you think? I, I go back and forth. I waffle on this. I've kind of joked that my next birthday, so next July Mm -hmm. will be my retirement from performance driven goals. And then it'll be exactly that. I'll still go to the gym two or three days a week, but I won't push as hard. I won't do the big compound lifts nearly as often, and um, that'll just be the end of caring about performance. Um, but we'll see because, you know, two months ago I pulled 500 pounds for the first time, and I was really motivated the two weeks after that. I'm like, I want to see if I can get to 550. Uh, so I go back and forth because I'm a human. Yeah, I, I wrestle with this too. And I mean, I know you know this because we've had conversations about it, and I think it's going to be an ongoing conversation between the two of us as friends for years to come. But that's me and running. I mean, it's, you know, something I've been involved with in, in a competitive form for 25 years now. And now I'm, I'm over 40. And you got the master's point, thing. Like, yeah, I got the you, master's thing, and it was a clean start. And I'm like, oh, all of a sudden I'm like competitive in these races again. And uh, and then I'm curious. I'm like, huh. I'm like, maybe I can't PR, but could I break four minutes for 1500? And I'm like, well, do I need to enter a race to do that? And it's like, I wrestle with a lot of this stuff. And then I'm like, well, I know the work that that's required. Do I want to do that much work for, you know, the next five years? Or do I want to run like three days a week, go to the gym a few days a week, maybe ride, you know, a bike every once in a while type of thing? I mean, I, I wrestle with a lot of this stuff too. It's tough because I think when you've been doing something long enough, whether it's a specific thing, in my case, running or just sport in general, that's taken different forms. Um, it's hard to like, just kind of let that go or separate yourself from it. Um, and I, I waffle back and forth. I'm like, do I need to? 
um, or, or not? Or is this like healthy? Does it occupy a better place than it did, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Um, and I've just, I think I've just had to get comfortable with, uh, sitting in that disorder. Um, as, as you say, that's right. It's also tricky because like competition is not a core value of mine. If it was, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Like I'd turn it on because it would be so important to me to be able to compete, compete against myself, compete against others. Um, so I ultimately think like I will get to a point where it's just not worth it. Uh, but there are all kinds of other ulterior reasons that I think that it is important for me to train hard. Um, one of which is that nothing else I do in my life is nearly as objective. I mean, I'm lucky as a writer that like the page is blank and then there's words on the page, but it doesn't mean people are going to like what I write or that the New York times is going to care about it or whatever, whatever it is. Whereas in the gym, like it's just me and the bar, you know, no one cares what the critics say about the lift. Like you either make it or you don't. Um, and it's in, in, in sure. And like a competition people judge, but either your hips lock out or you don't like, it's, it's very rare that the judge like that didn't count and you're like, it counted. Um, so I think like there are very good reasons to stay competitive. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I'm scared of the day that I won't have any performance driven goal, but I also kind of long for it. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the same boat. You and I can, can row down that river together because I, I, I feel the same way. I mean, running is very black and white in a lot of ways. You know, you either hit the time or you didn't, you know, you got on the podium or you didn't. It's like, you know, there, there's really not much of a gray area there. I mean, you know, there can be in various things, but more often than not, it's like, it's, it's pretty straightforward. You did it or you didn't. Um, and I just, I really, I really like that. Um, but at the same time, like, do I need that in my life still? I don't know. Um, but I'm okay with wrestling with it for a while. Yeah. And then the last thing I'll say is I think of Ryan Holiday, who's, um, a friend and, and a really nice person and great author. And, um, he talks about, he's not trying to win at his hobbies, Hobby, yeah. which I think we've talked about before, maybe even on this podcast. And then I'm like, well, am I trying to win at my hobby? And then it's like, well, should I be trying to win more as a writer? But it's like, no, because then I wouldn't be spending enough time in other rooms. So, um, you know, that's why I wrote a book on this stuff. Like it's, it's intellectually fascinating to wrestle with. And I don't purport to have the answers, but I think just naming and giving words and language for these trade-offs is, is the therapy in itself and is the useful thing for readers to then engage with. Last thing I want to talk about before we wrap up this conversation, my favorite part of the book, chapter five, uh, respond, not react. And I mean, for those listening to this, Brad and I were supposed to record this conversation two days ago. Uh, he had, a we'll just call it a maintenance issue at his, at his home that came up at the last minute and we had to reschedule. And as we hung up the phone, you're like, respond, not react. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly it. And again, I think this is something that applies to all these different areas of our life. I think of it in the, in the athletic sense, you know, you're in the middle of the race and, uh, your GPS watch stops working. You don't know what pace you're running. Um, you, you know, miss an aid station. Yeah, you miss an aid station. Like, do you react or do you do you respond? I mean, this happens in work environments, you know, all the time. You know, an employee does something that costs the company a lot of money. Like, do you explode and react or do, you know, you take the time to, like, respond to that situation? So let's just define our terms here. Like, what is the difference between reacting and responding? Reacting is automatic. So it's by definition rash. You don't think you just do. Responding is the opposite. It's thoughtful. You discern. You are making a conscious, effortful decision about what to do next. Um, that is the difference in how I define them. There is a place for reacting. If a snake 
creeps up on a trail isn't about to bite you and your nervous system senses it and you jump out of the way, you don't have time to think. And if you would have sat there and tried to respond, wouldn't have gone well. Uh, as an athlete, I mean, you tell me you're the more elite runner, but there are probably times, I'm thinking like towards the end of a race when someone goes, that you don't want to think. You just want to react. You want to get on their shoulder and go. That's very different than early in the race if your GPS watch breaks. Yeah. So I'd say 98% of the time responding is favorable. There are these certain circumstances where you do just want to not think and go, uh, but they tend to be much more rare. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And in in my experience, you know, whether it's athletics or, or I mean, use the example of a, a snake, like, you know, biting your leg. It's like something that you don't have time. Um and it catches you like sort of, I mean, I guess all these things kind of catch you off guard, but it's like you're, you don't have time to not react, I guess. Um, yeah. And your instincts, like your instincts are meant for that. Your instincts are yeah. not meant for like a plumbing thing that throws your day off. Yeah. Because there your instincts are like, freak out, freak out, freak out. My expectations weren't met. But if you freak out, you're just going to dig yourself a worse hole. Um, so it's like we have this brain that was wired for freaking out only when there was a snake or like a lion about to jump at you. But in the modern world, there aren't too many snakes or lions about to jump at you. Yeah. How can we just generally, whatever the, the situation, when, when something just catches us by surprise or we're in the middle of, of change? I mean, instinct is the word you just use. I think that's that's the, the right one. Like our instinct is like, I got to fix this right away or I have to do something, you know, right away. I mean, often is you know, as a coach sometimes, like, um, an athlete has a, a, a poor race, like they objectively did not hit their goal or, you know, they, they unraveled. It just, it, it didn't go well. And I, and I can, I can see that. Um, and I know like when they're, you know, when they reach out to me, um, I, I think about this often, I'm like, all right, what's my, my instant reaction? Like, what am I, what am I going to say to them? Or do I just like sit with it for a little bit and decide like, what's the best way to like kind of respond? But how can we just like, when we're in that moment, decide like, okay, like this is, this is something that I'm just going to, first thing that comes to mind, I'm just going to say it, I'm going to do it, um, whatever happens, or I'm just going to like slow things down and, you know, take the time to be thoughtful about what my next move is going to be. I think it's all about the context. So the minute that you ask yourself the question you did, you're already thinking about it. And mm. the right answer is to respond. Yeah. So when a snake jumps out at you or when a runner yeah. goes off your shoulder, like you just go, you know, like your, your nervous system is wired for that. The problem is when you kind of get into that cycle and you're like, wait a minute, like, do I really need to react? Well, no, you don't, because then you already should have reacted. Um, so if it's truly not that immediate, you want to shift into more of a responsive mode where you are pausing and you're processing what's happening and you're taking stock of the resources that you have available to deal with the situation and you're making a plan and only then are you moving forward. Yeah. If your instinct is just to react to everything, I mean, because we both know people who, you know, who are like that. And I, I guess like if we know that we're that way, like how can we train ourselves to become better at responding and, and not reacting? It's a good question. And, and it's hard because, um, we rehearse these patterns and then they get uh, right. They get cemented and they're hard to unwind. So um, two things. One is internal, one is external. Internal, because everyone loves a good heuristic, including me, I think about the four Ps. So when you feel yourself like shifting into reaction mode, you pause, you take a couple deep breaths, you process what's going on. So you say, this is what's happening in front of me right now. 
you can name your emotions. There's research that shows that naming what you're feeling helps diffuse mm-hmm. the situation. So you can say, like, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm feeling distressed. I'm, I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling really excited. I'm feeling like I just want to do something. Uh, you make a plan. So you say, these are the resources that I have available. These are the various paths forward. I'm going to choose the one that I'm most comfortable with. And only then do you proceed. So you're just creating space between a stimulus and a response. Um, and it's just practicing that over and over and over again. And it's using the feeling, like the visceral, blood-boiling feeling of wanting to react as a cue. It's like your meditation bell to hit pause. Yeah. Um, I think that equally as powerful and what people often overlook is the role of your environment. So if you're spending a lot of time in reactionary environments, you yourself are going to be a reactionary person. If you're on Twitter and message boards all day, if you're constantly hanging out with people that are snapping, if you watch a lot of cable news and listen to talk radio and you think you're going to be responsive, are you kidding? Like if you swim in reactionary waters, you're going to be a reactionary piranha. Whereas if you want to be a more responsive person, uh, you got to ask yourself, like, who are you surrounding yourself with? What kind of content are you listening to? Are you reading books and long form articles or are you sitting in the comment section? Uh, And I really do believe that, like, we can prime ourselves long before the moment to either respond or react simply by how we live our lives. Yeah, I I love that. And I think one thing I'll add, which you didn't say explicitly, but I think it's inherent in what you just described is is checking in with yourself. Um, I say this Mm -hmm. to my athletes all the time because it's in the middle of the race. I'm like, run the mile that you're in and check in with yourself every mile. You know, okay, how's my pace? Do I need to maintain? Do I need to slow down? Do I need to pick things up? Um, should I eat or drink something right now? How am I feeling? Like, am I, am I tired? Am I excited? Am I like a little bit bored? Why am I feeling that way? And it's like, you know, we go through this like long list and you're like, I don't have time to do that, especially in a situation like that. And it's like, these things do happen like, you know, pretty, pretty quickly. You know, it's not this, like, you're not going to stop on the side of the road and be like, all right, well, what am I going to do? It's like, this is all happening, you know, sort of in real time. But I think that's a skill that you can develop, you know, that skill of checking in with yourself, like really understanding how it is that you're feeling, um, you know, how things are going in, in a given moment and what decisions that you need to make to keep yourself on the path that you're on, set yourself up for success, whether that's the last 10 miles of the race, whether that's the last quarter of business for, you know, your company, um, or if that's like a decision within your family that you're trying to sort through. I think it's like all the same thought pattern. Yeah. And then, and then once you check in with yourself back to like, there's finding the, the abscess that we talked about earlier, and then there's doing something about it. So if you find that like you're really primed to react, well then what's the what's the behavior? Is it taking two days away from training? Is it mm-hmm. picking up a really good book and losing yourself in it? Is it talking to your coach or therapist or best friend? Is it you just need a couple nights sleep before you figure out how to move forward? Uh, in the case of your plumbing going to shit or your dog having diarrhea, is it like you just need to take six deep breaths and then that's enough for you to like very clearly know what to do? Um, and again, it's going to completely depend on the the scale of what's happening. Um, but having that awareness that you're like in a reactive state is helpful, but then you got to take yourself out of that reactive state somehow. Brad, this was great. Uh, always fun to talk to you, whether on the podcast or off. Your new book is Master of Change. It is out now as of this conversation at your local bookstore, Amazon. I mean, basically wherever you buy books, I'm sure you're able to find it. Uh, there's an audio version as well. Uh, you're doing a lot of other podcasts. So, I mean, you can learn more by listening to that. Um, 
anything you want to plug, I would say check out the growtheq.com. Great newsletter comes out every Thursday. They have a podcast of the same name with your partner, Steve Magnus. You talk a lot about these topics in depth. Um, I'm grateful to call you a friend. I'm excited for your new book. I do think it is your best work yet, and I've pretty much read every word that you've ever put out into the world, uh, going back to some of your first articles uh, that you wrote for me at Competitor. Um, And it's been a real pleasure having you back on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you, Mario. Uh, Those feelings are mutual. All right, that's it for this one. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. If you could, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning into this from. It means a lot to me, and it helps new listeners to discover the show. Also, a big thank you to my annual partners, Tracksmith, New Balance, Precision Fuel and Hydration, and Gooder for making it possible. Check out themorningshakeout.com slash partners to take advantage of some of the discount codes and special offers that are available exclusively to readers and listeners of The Morning Shakeout. Before we go, I'd like to give a couple more quick shout-outs. The first to John Summerford, who has edited and produced every episode of the podcast since we launched it in late 2017. He's the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. The second goes to Chris Douglas, who is my right-hand man and helps manage partner relationships. And last but not least, Nicole Bush, who gives me a hand with social media content strategy and creation and is my co-host for Training Talk Thursday, which you can tune into on Thursday evenings at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Morning Shakeout's Instagram account, which you can find at the AM Shakeout. And that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>